It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1952 film Fear and Desire. Here we are, beginning yet another new series here on the, the Novice Leaders podcast. But this is a big one. This is uh, something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Uh, just go through all the films by one filmmaker. And this time we're taking a look at the films of Stanley Kubrick. Starting with this one, uh, Fear and Desire. Um, and I'm curious for you, Eric. What is your journey with these Kubrick films? Um, oh, Actually, it was around... Like, I always knew he was something special and different, but where I started to become a true fan of his was circa 2008, 2007. Um, I had seen, you know, a few of his movies prior to that date, uh, but not many. Uh, and circa 2007, 2008 is where I started to take his catalog serious for the very first time. And that's when I started my endeavor to start like watching all his movies, you know, to, to fill out all the ones I had never seen. As, so that's when I begun, began my quest. And similar to me going through lost episodes of Doctor Who I had never seen, I intentionally paced myself because I didn't want to just watch them all like in one week. So I would watch one and wait several months or longer until I'd watch another one that I had never seen before until I ran out. I think Barry Lyndon was the last one I needed to watch, you know, after I was going through all of them. Uh, Anyway, uh, I still want to say that this is still, because I think we intend to go through these chronologically eventually. And some of the Kubrick movies have already come up in the last two, three years with me and Sean doing our other podcast endeavors. And every time any one of his movies came up, I was just like, oh, great. Like, how can you even talk about these movies? Like, it doesn't seem like it's possible to to come up with any idea, any original ideas that haven't already been spoken 100,000 times by other commentators in podcasts and, and on YouTube and anywhere else. So it just feels like, it's almost like a futile exercise. Like, how could you even... Um, do any type of review or reflection on any Kubrick movie unless it's one that almost no one has seen which this one kind of is like that actually but it's 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 something and yeah for us if we do go through these one by one this is a big deal uh, Kubrick's mm-hmm. the guy as far as I'm concerned um, and 
uh, just as an example, one of the recent random posts I saw on one of the movie um, message boards I, I follow on Facebook, someone put out the question, um, so who else do you think, I, I'm badly paraphrasing, but the point was, who are some other directors you think are like in the league of like Kubrick or, you know, they, that's not the way they said it, but that's what the question was. And okay, I'll see someone say Kurosawa. I will accept that answer, Kurosawa. But then a lot of people were saying Hitchcock, 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 Hitchcock. Yeah. I disagree with that. I disagree with that very much. Um, Hitchcock's great, and I love him, and I love many of his movies. But I don't think he's in the conversation of of the of Kubrick or or the greatest yeah. directors that are I'm not, not not greatest there's a better adjective it's, it's just a completely different avenue I mean he's up there with the Spielbergs like the blockbuster filmmaker yes type. it's exactly how I feel and, and that's that's different that's not Kubrick is not a Spielberg oh, well to, to many of us that's obvious but to <laughs> other people you have to sort of explain what that means um, and yes Hitchcock is more the the mainstream um appeal uh, not appease but appeal to like the largest swath of audience and that is not what kubrick is although it happens sometimes by accident but that's that those were happy accidents yeah and usually um, not at the time i always think of like the shining and full metal jacket as being something like that and i don't really count spartacus just because it's it's different for known reasons compared to the rest of his body of work. I'll still watch Spartacus and I'll still enjoy it. But it's just a, it's a different conversation. Yeah, it'll be fun to get to that one because I've actually read the book that uh, Kirk Douglas put out of the making of that. And he painted a very interesting image oh, of, Spiel of uh, Kubrick on that. <laughs> Spielberg. <laughs> so it'll be fun to discuss some of that. But well, That will be interesting. Because I would say that aside from Fear and Desire... Spartacus is the is the other Kubrick movie that just really stands out amongst the catalog, mm. the filmography. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'll just say, yeah, this is definitely a big deal for me too. Kubrick, just just like it is for you, has always been up there with one of the all time great filmmakers for me. Uh, Two thousand and one was my favorite film for a, a good number of years, but now it's been usurped by Doctor Strangelove. Like he he's always been at the top tier of me with the, uh, if if listing my favorite films, his movies tend to pile up in there compared to other filmmakers. But I've never actually watched them all in sequence like this before. I've seen them all. But, oh no, never. Yeah, which is uh, which is unusual for me because typically if I have a favorite director, I will watch them in sequence uh, at least once or twice. But for whatever reason, I've just never done it with with Kubrick yet. Um, yeah, I always jump around. Yeah, part of it being. Like you said, you, you kind of spaced them out because you didn't want to, I guess, burn through them too quickly. I did yeah. the same thing, and, and just last year I finished my final one, which was Eyes Wide Shut. I held off on that one for a good number of, <laughs> a good while. But now that now that I'm all done, I feel like it's it's time to go through them like this, so I'm pumped. No, it's cool. I, I don't usually do something like this, like a chronology of, the, of a filmography, but... Um... While I love them all, there's, there's, I'm definitely a homer in that sense that I don't outright dislike any of them at all. Um, that being said, 
there are certain ones of his catalog that I revisit a lot more. Not necessarily because they're my favorites, but there's just some that I will pop the disc in again and again and again um, for different reasons. And then others that I may like plenty, it's just they're more like once a year or even inf more infrequent than that for whatever reason. Yeah, 2001 is one of those that for me is, is relatively infrequent. Regardless, mm. um, despite what I, however I might rank it or whatever. In other words, the ones I rewatch a lot, that doesn't really correspond with how I would rank, like all of them if I was ever to do such a thing. Yeah, and maybe at the end of this we'll uh, we'll do that. But, <laughs> um, but where does Fear and Desire rank? When did you first see this one, in your Kubrick uh, journey? Hmm. <laughs> so actually. Around that time, I was just telling you where I started feeling like, okay, now I need to start going through his catalog. Um, so I made that decision. I had seen a few already, but the first one I watched, I think, when I when I decided this is like a mission or something, I want to say it was uh, Clockwork Orange, and it was kind of amazing because I was like the only person I knew who hadn't seen it like at that point. Um, <laughs> so I watched Clockwork Orange. Uh, and, and then, uh, trying to think how this went. And then maybe I saw Lolita. And then after Lolita, I think I did a little chronological run where I then went to this and then went to his chronological next movie and then his chronological next movie after that. Uh, so, so yeah, something like that. I think I answered mm. your question. Yeah, yeah. But just to comment on Clockwork Orange, I'd forgotten. Probably from around 16 to like 19, that was my favorite film, Clockwork Orange. But not, not definitely not one of my favorites now in terms of Kubrick's catalog. Yeah. But oh no, if we went through the list, if you just started naming all of them, I can easily put each one into one of two categories for myself, which is either I got it and understood it and loved it upon first viewing. Or the more common situation where I really didn't get the movie and I was just kind of stumped the first time. I mean, not confused and not that I hated it, but I couldn't figure out the genius of whatever movie it was. Um, and it, it became an acquired taste where I had to force myself to unravel it and experience it again and force and force and then eventually i would f discover it eventually but i had to put effort and and mm. most of his movies fell into that category for me when i watched them the first time yeah i could see that i mean yeah that's one of the reasons again he's not like a hitchcock because a lot of hitchcock movies don't really challenge you in terms of i mean maybe they'll challenge you by having a little bit of a complex plot you have to kind of connect all the dots but yeah in terms of more they'll do like, that and they'll like subvert subvert expectations in an entertaining way um the hitchcock stuff yeah but yeah yeah but the deeper questions yeah kubrick and again that's i mean we've had this debate many times that's one of the reasons i kind of lump nolan a little bit more in the spielberg category as well it's because i feel like he also kind of fixates on the moving part mechanics of filmmaking rather than kind of the deeper thought some of the time i should say but we should get into that today. But. In a way, though. In a way, though. In a way. Because 
and like if we want to compare well i don't know if we want to but let's just compare nolan uh philosophically to spielberg for a second and let's just say they're both about the mechanics of of their end result but i think spielberg is following a plan i'm generalizing obviously he's following a plan that will make a reliable timepiece and and all his timepieces are made the way timepieces are usually made um so if you get all the parts right and put it together just so it will tell time the way it's intended to in other words entertain the way it's intended to whereas nolan doesn't make standard timepieces he makes unique ones and and his timepieces are different uh he takes this approach to make this one and then he'll he doesn't want to do the same thing exactly the next time so he comes up with another roundabout way to make a timepiece it's still a timepiece but it he's not using the same template over and over and he's constantly trying to come up with new templates to 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 still achieve the same thing the same goal which is to entertain and everything uh a wide audience yeah but his clocks are funk they're non-conventional <laughs> yeah it's a little bit of a flawed analogy because i think no one's i mean at least five or ten times the filmmaker that Spielberg is. And again, not to knock Spielberg. Oh, jeez. He's made a lot of that. Oh, jeez. But I think the latter-day Spielberg, which is the majority of Spielberg's work, is not particularly standout or interesting. <laughs> he makes good films, but not particularly interesting at the same time. I think you're, <laughs> you're right. I'm sort of agreeing with you. However, I, I just noticed like really popular buzz and blurbs about his current West Side Story, which kind of surprised mm-hmm. me, and um, because I've only seen the trailer, and I really want to see the movie. I really do because I like musicals. Usually, I mean, mm. most of them, and uh, I really want to see his take on West Side Story. But I wasn't expecting people to be raving so much about it, so I'm curious to see why they're saying that about this particular Spielberg movie. Yeah, I'm curious too. I'm I'm probably going to see it on Christmas Day because we always go see a movie on Christmas Day, me and my partner. But yeah, West Side Story, I don't have a lot of attachment to the original movie. So I think there's room for improvement, but I don't imagine that I'm going to be super blown away. But we'll see. I've also heard the, the buzz. I always thought that movie was super slick and mm-hmm. just looked, looked more modern than the year it was produced. Um... Uh, just it looks incredibly modern for 62 or 60 whatever year it was that it came out um but anyway um but fear and desire fear and desire is weird right so it's his first Mm -hmm. actual feature he financed it himself or you could say through his relative his his dad and or his uncle helped him finance this movie production out of pocket um, they initially spent about twenty thousand just for the initial f- um, photography or filming, um, and it ended up doubling the budget when they did all the ADR um, <laughs> and and added the sound. That's weird that it would double the budget of the movie from a, approximately twenty thousand to about forty five by the time it was all finished, and that was again largely because of adding sound. Um, yeah. And again, it's very unlike any other Kubrick film. Well, yeah, even though you can find mild connections to later works, overall it feels very 
different. It's also the kind of thing that mm -hmm. no one would probably pay any mind if it wasn't um, the first movie of Kubrick or someone else famous. Like, this would be forgotten. Oh, yeah. Um, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. No, no one would ever know that this ever existed except for the fact that Kubrick was connected to it. And it was apparently yeah. considered lost for many decades after it came out. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because every now and again, I'll every now and again I'll scroll through IMDb just looking at random actors' filmographies and looking through their movies, and so many of them you see from this era, they'll just say lost, and I'll be like, oh fuck, well there's a movie I can't see now. <laughs> and yeah, this yeah. would have been absolutely if people weren't looking for it, which is kind of an interesting story. I did do a little bit of Wikipedia research at least for this. I thought it was curious that the distributor for this, Joseph Bernstein, died seven months after the release in a plane crash, fifty-four. I always think those kind of things are just uh, sad for whatever reason for me. Kind of hit me in a certain spot. This is not exactly the same thing, but you reminded me of something like, uh, I don't know if you ever heard this before, but you know Seth MacFarlane of Family Guy fame, etc. Mm -hmm. Um, He was actually supposed to board one of the infamous 9-11 planes. Um, he had a ticket to get on one of those planes, um, but he was late and he missed his flight. Uh, so some people who know that famous fact go, wow, you know, how different things could have mm. been if he would have made his flight and obviously perished in the flight. Um, you know, all the things that never would have happened that he produced post 9-11. Um, mm. However, when you hear him talk about it in interviews, and they go, wow, do you feel so lucky that, you know, and he says he doesn't think of it as that much of like a religious experience or or whatever you want a cosmic experience he says because he made a routine he, he routinely missed flights all the time so it's not <laughs> like he just missed this one flight apparently he would miss flights all the time so he doesn't put too much into it personally you know but still but still he had a ticket for one of those planes i think one of the ones that flew into the towers he, he should have been on one of those planes when he missed, oh. missed his flight yeah, for whatever reason, I've always had kind of an attachment to planes and plane crashes. I don't know what it is, but but I did think that was interesting. I mean, here's oh. this guy who was kind of producing some, trying to work in the independent uh, field at that time, which is a very tough spot to be in. And then just, oh, yeah, his career gets cut off by a plane crash. Too bad. Produced Kubrick's first film, who knows what else? No, but this movie, uh, if you look in the cast and crew, there's other significant peoples, unexpectedly. Um, the writer of this uh eventually won a pulitzer for um and many other awards for writing uh, the great white hope which i know nothing about but was made into a Me movie either. and a book and a and a broadway show and he won many awards for that he also wrote jaws 2 mm, not considered the best <laughs> jaws movie but he also had i can't remember his cause of death but he also died relatively young I mean, well, like 53 or something. So he oh, died man. like almost like right after Jaws. And so, you know, who knows what else he would have done if he lived a longer life. Um, and then the actor who's super annoying in the movie, his character, I can't stand him in the movie, but that uh, actor, yes, yeah, Sydney, he went on to be uh, a very, very accomplished director and Mm. He's still alive today. 
and I mean, he was nominated for five different Academy Awards that had to do with either um, screenplay or directing. That's ridiculous. <laughs> that is ridiculous. Yeah, and I remembered him from uh, the 70s, A Star is Born. Plays a role oh. in that that was uh, memorable. And, and, and quality, too. He, he, was, he was fine in that compared to uh, kind of a terrible performance in this, but I can't really judge him. First feature, but well, oof. <laughs> it's not his fault in this movie. It's yeah, he's doing a perfectly fine theatrical dramatic performance. That's fair. it's just what's on the page is what's obnoxious, and and what he's bringing to life is obnoxious. Oh God, it's obnoxious, and it's partially the fault of Kubrick letting these takes linger and go on way too long for him in some of them. And it's like, you can feel Kubrick behind the camera being like, okay, keep it going, keep it going, we're still running here. And it's just like, ooh, like he's not, he's he's really not selling it. <laughs> like maybe take a break and work a little bit more. He's definitely okay. the one of the group that really stands out with some bad stuff in there. Especially with that girl. All the stuff with her just becomes so terrible. We will definitely revisit some of this, but I want to throw something else out. Because um, I will sure. go back to, to Sydney and the girl and all that stuff. But... So another weird thought I had as I was watching this in preparation for this, because I hadn't watched this since I got the Blu-ray how many years ago? So it's been a while. Uh, I don't know. It's been a bunch of years. Uh, I don't know. I probably got this, I don't know, 2014 or something. I don't know. But um, hmm. just as I was watching it now, I was having a thought. Now, go with me on this, Caleb and, and listeners. I'm not saying this was the intent of Kubrick or the screenwriter. Let me preface with that. This is just me playing a silly mind experiment with myself. Okay. It's come up in a bunch of the movies that you and I have talked about recently. Especially the the Villeneuve and the Nolan stuff that we've seen. Which is a movie or a story being like a metaphor for making a movie. That's a common motif. Well, for some reason, that idea popped in my head as I was watching this. And I'm not saying that was anybody's intent. I'm just grafting it on, okay? But I think it, it works a little bit if you stretch your imagination and if you pretend that this whole story, uh, the, the, the plight of the four soldiers or the three soldiers and the pilot, the plight of our protagonists, the whole movie... You could stretch your imagination and say this is a metaphor of trying to make a movie or trying to make your first movie. Um, um, in short, I would say, okay, so so they've crash-landed and they're trying to get... They've crash-landed behind enemy lines. And they're not too far off from um, those lines. But... the. Their purpose in the movie is to try to get back to, to safe, to the safe side, to their side. Um, and the obstacles are um, that they don't really think they could pass through the enemy forces unless they take this path on the river. Um, and if they can avoid getting caught or seen or whatever, or get into any major entanglements, they can perhaps rejoin their side on the other side of, of, the, of the front. Um, and that whole mission or journey, again, in my little brain, 
I just had fun with the idea of thinking this is a metaphor for trying to make your first movie. Meaning, um, I want to make a movie. I've never done it before. I have very little resources. Um, but I want to get there. Um, and I'll do whatever it takes. But there's these different perils and pitfalls along the way. But maybe if I can follow this path through the river, I can somehow finish this movie and get it made. I don't know. Is this too much of me just in my own imagination, or can you see any of all what I'm saying um, without me having to try to explain it more? I could see kind of like the threadbare through line that you're talking about, but I think so much of the movie is filled with other pretensions that it's hard to really connect to all of that. But again, it, you know, that's your interpretation a movie like this is all up to interpretation so i mean however you want to read it yeah and again it's for my funsies i don't think that was anybody's intent in design it's just i could i can graft it on top um and oh oh and part of the oh i forget there's other reasons why i have this idea because there's also you know it starts off and it weirdly feels like a throwaway or generic Twilight Zone episode, because mm-hmm. there's a, this is a nondescript country with nondescript characters in a nondescript land, and this is not necessarily a real war that's ever existed before, even though things will be familiar to us, even though they speak our language, and all this stuff. And it, it, the narrator leaves it open to this may this may be real or not, and you know may have happened, but it's based on some type of truth. So, again, that's what started me with this little thought experiment, which was that's what movies are, you know? Um, Whether the movie is based on a true story or not doesn't matter. It's not a real thing. Like, these... No matter what movie you're watching, these actors are not the people who they portray. These Mm -hmm. things never really happened. You you know what I'm saying? It's all make-believe. Um... It's it's just if you believe it in your mind or not, or if the or if the the production is able to convince you, you know that it's real or take you away on a journey. But it's so that's what started me thinking about this as being like the process of a movie um, and movie magic, um, mm. and then trying to achieve that for the first time and trying to convince an audience to just go with this, even though it's all just make believe. I guess that's what put the seed in my head, and then I just went with it from there i did think that was a weird way to open the film with that little piece of narration like saying like hey you know everything you're seeing on screen it's not really you know it's not really a reality of its own it's a metaphor type of thing i was like okay i guess it's a good way to set up because it's so kind of vague of a movie that you kind of need to i guess guide your audience a little bit towards it but it still just felt like a little a little outdated and a little strange for kubrick Knowing what he does later, I should say. I mean, but but why you know why did they do that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a rhetorical question. So this movie came out during the Korean War era. Why didn't they just go with those types of costumes to reflect the current day? Or if you didn't want to do Korea, simply do you know World War II that was just a few years prior. Like, why not set this in Europe or set it in Asia and you know still keep the same story? That seems like the obvious thing to do, is to set it well, in a known war period, and, and you wouldn't have to change to, and you could just use, because these are like made up uniforms, 
because they don't exist yeah. in real life. They only exist in this movie. They could have easily done Korean era type, um, Korean War era type uniforms or World War II or even Civil War or who knows what. Why did they do this? I don't know. Well, I mean, we know Kubrick as, a, as an artist. He's always had that kind of artistic surrealist bent. He, he kind of hides it better in some things and some things it's more overt. I think maybe at this point in his career, I guess he thought that he was going to be like a Louis Bonnell or someone like that. So he just, yeah, went all out. But <laughs> Tell me who that is, because I don't know. Uh, Tell me who that is and what he's known for. Louis Bonnell. He, he's the one, he worked with uh, Salvador Dali on that little famous short film. Okay. Um, okay, I know what that is. I always forget what that film's called. Some sort of title yes, I can't but... say. He made a bunch of, yeah, he's a very famous surrealist from the, the 60s and the 70s. Okay. Or, uh, sorry, further back, <laughs> Louis Bonnell, but... Or, um, yeah, like a Salvador Dali or someone like that. You, you could feel that influence here. Kubrick, I feel like, has also always been influenced by European cinema, so... Because if he was going for that angle in this one, which I could see, he seems not to go for that in his next two movies that follow this. Because his next two uh, movies yes. seem fairly conventional... For the time and everything yeah and i think i think maybe that comes down to this movie just failing and so he was <laughs> kind of like okay i need to you know do more mainstream things to try to get my budgets because again we talked about that too with kubrick is you know he's a practical filmmaker even though he's an artist at heart he still realized the kind of business of making film and had to work on a little bit more mainstream of a medium get his budget through what but... source did you did you see this movie did you watch this movie um, I bought this on YouTube. Okay. You bought it on YouTube, you said? Yeah, it, it was pretty cheap. I, I think I bought it like two years ago. It was oh. like, I don't know, like six bucks or something. Because <laughs> here on the US YouTube, there was an option to buy it for $10 in HD. Um, but you could just watch it for free where someone posted it eight years ago. Um, and, the, and famously, oh. the copyright on this expired many years, many decades ago. So I think that's part of the reason why it's available for free on YouTube. Oh, yeah, yeah. I did see that, too. Mm. The reason I asked is because is because the, the Blu-ray edition is a little bit interesting in the United States. Um, it's interesting because, first of all, when the copyright expired and nobody really owned it, and then it was discovered again, some sources say it was found again in the 80s, some say it was found in the early 90s, but regardless... It was found, thought lost for many decades. It was found, and because the copyright expired and nobody had ownership of it, um, the Library of Congress sort of grabbed onto it and added it to their collection. And so mm -hmm. the, the Blu-ray release is partly associated with the Library of Congress, which is weird because I don't have any other movies that have such, such associations. Um, yeah, my uh, my YouTube copy has the same. Yeah, and then the Blu-ray itself, it has like one special feature, which is an interesting special feature. It has um, oh. Kubrick's um, little paid-for. It's it's like a documentary, but it, it's really a pro pro promotional puff piece. Um, he took a job to do a little thirty-minute documentary slash puff piece on the uh the the u.s merchant marines um 
and it's 28 minutes long and it's on the disc and it's called the seafarers and like i said it's produced like a documentary but it's meant to be like an ad for for men to join the merchant marines is really what it is um like like an extended commercial Mm. for that and it's 30 minutes long and you know it was all uh shot and directed by kubrick and he took it as a paid job i believe right after this after fear and desire it was done in the same year i think he did it right after fear and desire and because he was looking to try to finance his next movie so taking the that job was for that cause but mm. it's an it's an interesting piece of material it's a great bonus feature um and the, the film quality is just about as good as this is um which is they're both they're both really, really clear. They're not fully restored the way Criterion likes to do things, but they're both the Seafarers and Fear and Desire are based upon really strong, um, like original, original film footage. So, so they look pretty nice. Um, but yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. In the uh, at least on Wikipedia, they say there's rumors that Kubrick uh, destroyed the negative, the original negative of this. So the right. version that we have now is based off of third party. Uh, I guess collectors or something right so that's kind of interesting and from everything i could read yeah he absolutely disowned this he called it pretentious and boring he said it was just like a art student experiment although even though he wasn't a student at the time but yeah he just yeah no no sense of uh pride in this one and i get it i get how he wanted this never to exist or see the light of day again that being said, I don't think it's that bad at all. At all. I was going to ask, what, what, I mean, like, what do you think? Um, what do you think is the better achievement for first film? Um, uh, this uh, for Kubrick? Or what was it called? Something about baseball? Uh, the um, Richard Linklater's oh my God. Uh, <laughs> little first movie attempt? Definitely this. <laughs> definitely <So> funny. <laughs> but but you know i mean some i mean kubrick's eye is just a cinematographer i mean that that link later film that thing just looked like trash i'm sorry to say it had some good setups throughout <laughs> but it just looked horrible and <laughs> just completely dull well, to be fair that was like a one or two man operation yeah. uh the link later affair Whereas this, at least he had a like, crew of like 15 people or something to help him yeah. uh, produce the movie. <laughs> oh, by the way, just uh, slightly off track here. So I just got to the scene where the men are all watching those ladies doing their fishing, and then they encounter her, that one woman in the, the woods. For whatever reason, yes. some of the shots was making me think of the Virgin Spring. I don't know if you had any of that, just... Mm. Just some of the being in nature and these. I wasn't thinking of the Virgin Spring in particular, but a, a separate thought I had is that um, if you watch Igmar Bergman's like films from, I can't remember if his first movie was like in '39 or like '41, but anyway, around that time is when he had his first movie or produced his first movie. And if you watch his early movies, like from the ones from the '40s. They also come across as anybody could have made this. Like, not necessarily a genius. Mm. You know what I mean? Because they're fairly straightforward. They're black and white. They could be done by any Swedish director, I guess. 
because now if you know who Bergman is, you can start to fish out the Bergmanisms that are in there. But you wouldn't know that unless you knew this was like a famous guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you're just watching it, you just think, oh, it's just a random Saturday matinee movie. Uh, nothing too heavy, like to process. And that's where I see a little bit of a similarity of comparing this to something like that. Although, even those Bergman movies, again, are pretty straight conventional dramas where this is mm-hmm. something else with this whole alternate dimension, Black Mirror, like, what's going on? And we're going on a psychological trip of these four antagonists and how they... They're all reacting differently to the, to the situation that they're in. So, so there's, there's so there's this whole psychological layer to this. And again, if you really want to, you can see little seeds of ideas from this movie that connect to Paths of Glory, that a little bit connect to um, Doctor Strangelove, and then again connect to uh, Full Metal Jacket. There is, I believe, oh, there is boy. connective tissue when you go back and and look at it, because he, um, if this movie *Fear and Desire* was made in the '80s, then Vincent D'Onofrio would have been the Sydney character. Oh, okay. I can kind of, I can kind of see what you're saying there. Yeah, and at least in that regard. And the sergeant is a little bit more, um, I guess, Army Ernie or whatever the drill sergeant in. Uh, <laughs> um. So I'm trying to think. What else do we have? Um, we don't really have the other... Because like, someone like Joker is a lot more complex character, which there's not really an analog for him in this. Yeah, these are all kind of sketches. More... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then there is always a through line in, in most all the Kubrick movies where women are... Man, they, they play some kind of weird role in virtually all his movies where where they are women are like a token for something that's so desirable that brings out a man's carnal nature um Mm -hmm. like they're this weird forbidden fruit um and there's always like there's a weird obsession that that kubrick has with a lot of the females in most of his movies um and that's that's a through line here for this, um, which is also a through line in Bergman and Woody Allen movies, by the way. But anyway, I mean, <laughs> a woman seductress or or something like that. Like these guys definitely all have lady issues. Let's, let's yeah. just put it that way. Except for the one guy who's like a non-character guy who <laughs> doesn't seem to have any sort of opinion or anything at all. Oh, when I said these guys. I was talking about the directors, uh, Kubrick oh, and well. Bergman and, and Allen. That's who I meant by these guys. Like they was, <laughs> it's enough. reflected in their works that they have lady issues. Yeah, I was uh, just just uh, redirecting a little bit because I was trying to think. We got these four characters, and I feel like they're all you know meant to be representative of something. Yes. Sydney feels like this kind of more childlike element, but also like an unstable mm-hmm. element. Mm-hmm. We get. Uh, I don't really know. Like again, there's that one guy who's like, I don't know why he's there. The fourth wheel with no character or anything really. <laughs> okay, he's like he's like the everyman. He's like the nondescript everyman. 
I would say. Yeah, which almost seems almost seems useless because uh, the pilot seems similar. He's just in the leader role. Like the other guy's almost just like a a shadow of the pilot. Yeah, the the pilot is just a generic, like the all American flyboy hero protagonist type. Um, you mm-hmm. know, he's he's the Ken doll that comes in the army man outfit, uh, basically. But with the slight thing that even though he's the leader, he has no real direction, doesn't know what to do, kind of gets guided around by the others. And so that that's a little int- a minorly interesting wrinkle to him. But yeah, then he's got his little lackey follower. And then we have, of course, Mac, the one who challenges at every corner, this kind of blue collar guy. Doesn't really respect authority. And I, I don't really know how all these characters come together to paint a, the whole picture. Like, I don't quite get what the purpose of the they all what are. What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? Explain that question or that query. Well this is this is clearly an art film with some clear pretensions of trying to tell like a serious kind of mm-hmm. I don't know what. I, I I'm not sure if it's a direct parallel with just war or if it's meant to reflect just a like a story in life in general. I think both. I, if you know what I mean. I think I do. I think it's both. I think I think it's four men who are in a difficult situation and a struggle that they have to overcome, but the situation and and then the situation they find themselves in combined with their strategies for dealing and overcoming the situation are all different because of how different the four characters are. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but, but my question is, for what purpose really because when i get to the end so much of it just feels like it was it was just kind of free form putting things together but none of it really connects to any sort of greater whole so it all just I mean, seems loose it's much more clear in kubrick's later war related movies but it's war is hell war is madness war makes no sense that's a common theme in all his war movies the other mm-hmm. thing is the effects it has on people. How it makes... It changes everyone in different ways. It makes some people crazier and insane. Um, there's other people who have cool heads. Oh, and when I say go crazy or go insane, different ways of going crazy and going insane. Um, and just how different men or soldiers deal with the stress of war in different ways that it affects them all in different ways. Yeah. Um, what was I watching recently? Um, me and Sean, uh, watched, uh, Johnny guitar. And one of the elements in that movie was there was this guy who was sort of the leader of a gang of a four man gang. And, he was part of the four and each one of them played a different role in the group and it's strikingly similar the roles that they've played um are very similar to the roles that these four chaps uh play in this so there's a parallel to this yeah there is because there is the um the face the pretty boy leader um and then there's his antagonist in, in both johnny guitar and this there's the antagonist, the one who's like very disagreeable, very gruff, speaks his mind, but 
thinks very two-dimensionally, I would say, which is the sergeant in mm. this. And then there's the very young person in in the four-man groups in both movies. And then there's the every every guy. The guy who's easy to get along with. He's not really trying to push any particular agenda. He's just kind of loyal to the group. So you have like four people mm-hmm. say, playing the same types of roles within the group in this and Johnny Guitar. Yeah, and in that one, did it feel like there was more of a purpose for having these kind of... Because again, I, I look at all these and I feel like they're supposed to represent something. Uh, just... Well, it did, okay, in that movie, it caused drama because for the group because... If they all could have been on the same page, they kind of been they could have been more successful in Johnny Guitar. But because they were fractured personalities with fractured agendas, it ended up kind of ruining the whole group in, in, in that movie. Yeah, there's there's almost a, a part of me the that feels like maybe some of the thing here was meant to be again, going back to this, but kind of looking at different sides of man represented in these kind of different elements here. But again, none of it really connects. And we get to the end there with the, the colonel, or the, the general, I should say, and it was played by the same guy who played the pilot, and his little lackey is the same guy. Yes. And I'm like, okay, what are we what are we doing here? All powers the same? or <laughs> It just starts to feel So like... they say that that was... Yeah, people are, are of two minds about that. Because they say the reason that the, that was done was not to be arty, artsy, but just because it was a matter of budget... And so, no, no, no. <laughs> okay, well, that's what it says in some accounts that it was because of limited budget, limited people that they had the actors, some of the actors played two parts, you know, within the same production. So they say that it was done out of practicality, but then critics will take it the, the next step, which is, well, even if that's so, is there perhaps another reason to this besides budget? Which is like, you know, pondering like what you just said, or, I mean, what does it mean? What does it mean? And they, they almost comment on it, because when the guy shoots himself as the, the general, he has that moment where he looks at him like, wait a minute, was that me? And then he, like, his friend pulls him away before he has a chance to really, you know, contemplate it. But it's it's acknowledged, at least, in that minor moment. Jeez, and it, so then, you know, it opens a whole other box of contemplation. Because are these schism characters like we were just talking about in Enemy and um, Persona? Are these schism characters mm-hmm. or is it just saying that the enemy is no different than us? That we're just on two different sides? Um, I forget which was the movie. They kind of do say that. I forget which movie it was. Was it All Quiet on the Western Front or what? It... There's the famous, I think it's a silent movie, war movie where what's unique about it is that you follow these boys who are like in school and then they join the army and then they serve in the war but what's weird about it is they're germans in in other words the enemy but they're portrayed as if they're all americans do you know what i mean i do you know what movie i'm talking about i don't but i i know that kind of i I think it is all quiet in the western. I think it's all western, all, all, all quiet. And I've, I haven't watched the whole movie, but I watched some of it once. And it's weird because you see them in school, and they just seem like any kids, like anywhere, like any town USA. But they're Germans, 
and they're mm-hmm. enlisting in the German army. And it's so weird because you identify it doesn't have oh it does not have overtones of German culture. They're portrayed like they're Americans. Yeah. And so that causes a weird dynamic because you associate with them and you bond with them, but then you're like, oh, but they're Germans. They're not they're not Americans. <laughs> they're the bad guys. So then you wonder is there some kind of statement like that embedded in this that we're no different? It just depends what side you happen to be on. Oh yeah, that's definitely in there. Yeah. I mean, he even has there's even that line in the intro and they're like um the enemies in this film don't exist except if we conjure them into being. So it's almost like we make our own enemies, which is, you know, of course very true in terms of uh, a lot of at least US kind of geopolitics but let's not get into that but no it's you're not wrong you're not wrong at all that seems to be our worst enemy right now is other americans like we've we've put our other american enemies in front of our true enemies our phantom menaces that are out there it's very annoying by the way uh but yeah that that is very much where we seem to be currently in this country and then, and then there's that kind of interesting, a little bit of a class warfare element with Mac, who becomes almost immediately fixated on killing the general, and even does this weird comparison where he's like, I feel like I'm a lady in an opera watching like the real players. And he's like, once I kill him, then he'll see me. It's, 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 I don't quite fully get what the, the statement is there. It almost, uh... again, it almost reminds me of when a character is warring with themselves um, and one part of their psyche wants to kill the other part of the psyche because it wants to be in charge. You know what I mean? That's what it reminds me of. Yeah, and then I guess if we're looking at these four men as kind of representing, you know, maybe man itself, maybe not just one man, but just kind of the makeup of a man. Yeah, we have the, the childlike one who's, you know, He's got like this weird thing with the general too, where it's almost like the general's like either a father figure or an authority figure where he ends up killing that, that girl just so that she won't tell the general that he was making fun of him. I thought that was a weird element again too. (laughs) Super weird. Super weird. And it it makes me, oh God, okay. I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but... It kind of reminds me of, I, and I wish I was, I wish I knew psychology and anatomy terms better so I could use them for this. But um, you know how there's a part of your brain that kind of governs overall, like what you're doing and stuff, and and the choices you make. Um, and it's like mm-hmm. it's the governing body of your brain. If it was like that movie Inside Out, it's like whoever's the leader, like inside your brain. That kind of moderates the other thoughts that go on in your brain and other ideas you have. And there are times when I used to drink more when I was younger. Where whatever that part of my brain is that governs and inhibits poor behavior and poor decisions. It's pretty strong in me. Like when I'm just regular sober me. And it keeps the rest of me, my brain, usually in check. But there were times when I was younger where I hated... That I had that moderation so strong naturally that I would intentionally try to overdrink to overpower that governor 
because then I knew once it gets to do with alcohol, then the silly the parts of me that need to be in check can can run free um, with the moderate. And so then there was sometimes when I was younger where I intentionally drink more to take out the moderator to let more of my crazy out intentionally. Um, so I wonder if this is some type of metaphor for that when if you're having like an inner struggle, struggle of not wanting to be the same old you every time and so I don't know if the sergeant represents that of breaking your own norms or breaking your own traditions um, or I should say status quo that's the tough part is because yeah some of it's it's because it feels so loose it it doesn't feel like there's necessarily a through line between a lot of these ideas but yeah because because sometimes it feels like we're looking at some somewhat of a class structure with we have the people on top and then kind of the people around them and how that reflects and then yeah other times it feels like they're pieces of one but again none of it really comes together i don't think but i've only seen it twice so maybe maybe more viewings but i don't know <laughs> But stuff with class, that comes up in almost every serious war movie. Mm. Always comes up. The, the class system within the military itself. Yeah, it could just be baked into the material in that way. And it's, again, interesting, too, to think that we have a Pulitzer Prize winning writer behind this. I mean, maybe they couldn't help it being so loose with maybe the production issues, like having the budget. Like, I wonder, because I know that Stanley Kubrick intended this to be a feature, but an hour, even in 1950, is pretty short for a feature, so... True, but... I wonder if some of that stuff was affected. I'm guessing, though, that's the hard part about neither one of us being alive and sentient or conscious in the 1950s or 40s or 60s, even, because... So I'm guessing, at the time this came out... You know, this is still, like, when television was just starting to be a thing. So, mm. so you know, your main media, aside from books, would still be, like, theater and radio at this time. And then, of course, there's movies. And so, I wonder, and I got some of this from reading uh, about it, but... So, this is your Saturday matinee type stuff. I guess like these would probably be movies that were more inexpensive to go to or just considered like, you know what they are in the days before mainstream television. This is like filler content that you find on, on Netflix. You know what I mean? It's not the mainstream mm -hmm. stuff like squid games and Witcher. It's just that stuff. It's just extra padding. It's extra content. Um, niche. And so, if you and I could time travel and just hit up Saturday matinees in general, I'm curious, would we find just so many random, different, weird, quasi-experimental pieces like this? Or is this very unique? And that everything else was just very standard by the numbers, and is this pushing some type of envelope? Or, again, were there just many examples of people experimenting? For these low budget affairs i don't know but i'm very curious well i know that a lot of that kind of european stuff was being brought in 
And I don't think that those would have had the same... Like, they may have been more the fillers. Like, oh, we bought in this big European import. We bought this whole studio's back catalog. So we're just going to play it. Like, I think I, they... I think they did that sometimes with that European stuff, but then also there was the art house scene as well um, in the United States. Mm -hmm. Like, I want to say too, like a lot of the early Bergman films, that's what happened. Um, they were serious productions in, in, in Sweden, but then they would just sell them to the United States or UK or whatever. And then the U S in the fifties, they would just take the Bergman movies and if there was any part of the movie that seemed like artsy or distracting, they would just cut it. They would just cut it. Mm. And so yeah. <laughs> a 90-minute Bergman film might get trimmed down to 75 minutes, 70 minutes to take out all the confusing bits. And then it would just be like a straightforward <laughs> microdrama, basically. And sometimes they would package them together like that or make them into a double feature or just, yeah, that's what they would do. With those early, before he became famous it, it was like filler material as you say oh man that's so ridiculous <laughs> <laughs> oh but i did want to i did want to comment a little bit because no it's quite interesting i'm to sorry an independent film oh go ahead <laughs> i'm sorry it's just before you continue with that thought because there's this one bergman film i think it's called summer with monica and if you watch it, it's it's very. I think it was the inspiration for uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Did you see that, Wes Anderson? No, I think that's the last one I haven't seen yet. Mm. Oh, and Darjeeling Unlimited. Oh my gosh! Yeah, I've not seen those two. Both, I think, are. I think both of them are standouts in their own way, uh, in the in mm. Wes Anderson catalog. But anyway, oh, you haven't seen Moonrise Kingdom. So Moonrise Kingdom, it's about many things, but but the main part of it. Is about these two youths who are I don't know 12-ish years old and they sort of have this summer fling and they're both outcasts and 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 they have this thing for each other and they try to elope in a kid kind of way in a non-serious kid kind of way they try to elope um, and so they try to you know run away from their lives and society and have it's just the two of them you know like out in the wilderness. And I think it was inspired by this Bergman movie called Summer with Monica, where a similar situation happens, except they're not prepubescents, they're standard young people, young adults. Mm. And so that movie is kind of an artsy take on a young fleeting summer romance, is what it is. And then if you watch the special features, Again, when they when it got bought in the United States to get played, uh, they cut it up a bit, and because spoiler, there's a brief frontal nude scene at the very end. I mean, fleeting glimpse is what I'm talking about. Um, the American trailer plays it up like this whole movie is going to be like. A sleazy 70s or 80s like booby kind of movie um <laughs> so that's the way the american trailer sells it but except that's not what it is but it's just it's really funny to watch the trailer like it, it like it makes you think this is going to be this super sexploitation movie but it that's not at all what it is um but anyway i'm sorry yeah oh distributors oh boy 
<laughs> oh, but I was going to say, it's, uh, it's interesting to see an independent film from this period. Because you really don't see too many of that at all. I mean, this was, I, th I think, only like three or four years after the whole studio kind of control over cinemas broke down. So a lot of independent stuff wouldn't even had the opportunity to be produced uh, before this. And yeah, even though it's not super successful, it's still kind of just nice to see a independent film from, what is this, 1953? Yeah. Like there's, like, there's a lot of stuff in the 60s, but yeah, almost nothing I've seen from the 50s, at least. And of course, there's like Roger Corman and stuff, but they're their own little studio. I mean, that's... It's independent in a way, but it's not quite like this. I, su you know? I suppose most of it was just lost. Um, and then, or, like, you get the, like, you used to, well, in the United States, you used to see these weird collections for sale, like, in a bargain bin, like, at Walmart. This would have been, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. <laughs> and and you it would be, like, some weird um, packaging of of movies, you know, with ex with um, expired copyrights, and it would be like, um, and every once in a while, you'd, there'd be some serials um, from the cinema from the mm. '30s or the '40s or the '50s. Um, again, that was more filler um, for kids to go see or mm. whoever to go see. General audiences to watch like very low budget movie serials and things like that, like Last of the Mohicans. Flash Gordon and whatever. I mean, those are famous ones, but you know what I mean? So I feel like there was a lot of that too. And I, I'm sure a lot of those things all don't exist anymore, except for those few that made it to those bargain DVD collections I'm talking about. Yeah, no, I'll just comment. Yeah, I've got actually a bunch of those. And I'm sure, I'm sure there was a bunch of schlocky... Oh, well, there you go. And I'm sure there was a bunch of schlocky, like, I mean, like second-rate... I know there was second-rate westerns, Second-rate war oh, yeah. films. I'm sure gangster movies. Yeah. yeah when I first started collecting uh, movies back around like 2008, I was just like, oh, I need more movies on my shelf. I'll just buy these 50 movie packs and all a bunch of classic movies. <laughs> and I, I found some actually some pretty some movies that I still love to this day, like uh, Carnival of um, Souls, Horror Express. Uh, that's why I first saw Nugget Living Dead. Or actually, no, I'd, I'd seen I Living Dead on TV, but that's why I first got my DVD. Now that I was happy with those those packs, I wish they'd put them out still. It's a fun way to, uh, you know, just pad out your collection. <laughs> when I was a kid, every once in a while you could find some bargain VHS, which was like these random things. You have no like, I, like it'd have cartoons, but you have no idea where these cartoons came from or who produced them. Um, like they weren't the Warner Brother Disney stuff. It was like something else. Um, and those were interesting when I get those because some of those would be really cool, but they're like unique, you know, just like random weird kids cartoons. Oh, that is interesting. I think I have a pack of those too. Old random cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> I just love those packs. Oh, but just because uh, I'm seeing some of it on screen right now. Uh, what do you think of all the inner dialogue stuff I don't know it's okay I don't know <laughs> I don't know what to say um, it's weird because I've been watching so many review and reaction videos lately to 84 Dune and of course everybody criticizes oh, 
that movie for those inner dialogues. Mm-hmm. And people do the same thing. They don't like the narration um, version of uh, Blade Runner. Um, but then I noticed when I was watching Fellowship of the Ring the other night, uh, there was like, they, obviously they don't do it throughout the movie, but there was there's little parts where like Frodo was like has like a little a little inner monologue dialogue. He's like, "Can I trust them? Should I do this alone? Is this my is this my?" you know, burden to bear alone, you know, or I want to say there's a few with some of the other characters too. Like, I I feel like there's one with Bormir where he's like, what would I do if I had the ring? Would I use it right? Or, you know, and, and there, you'll, again, the the fellowship of the ring is not filled with these, but there, there is, there's a couple little scenes of little, oh, and there's certainly like Galadriel, yeah, glad uh, real, yeah. There's definitely one with her, but it's weird that they're there because I didn't really remember them happening. Um, I'm okay with it. I just wish we could have got an inner dialogue of the, the poor hapless girl mm. who gets all involved with this. And geez, I looked up on Wikipedia. She just passed in in 2019, and she was like 94 years old. Holy shit. Oh wow! Wow, that's a long life. It's hmm. insanity. Uh, I think she was born in 1925. Good grief! It's it's just crazy because she looks so young. And of course, Sydney's still alive uh, presently. So it's, oh, it's yeah. just bizarre. It's just bizarre. Yeah, but she is interesting as kind of, I guess, in some ways, the object of fear and desire, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Because. Yeah. Um, like there's that little touch of there's a little banter between the the pilot and the sergeant there early on about like hey you know even though we're in this uncivilized place you have to be civilized yes and then when she shows up he starts acting a little bit you know like he wants to sexually assault her and then eventually we see that kind of break down with the sydney and and of course there's other things of desire like killing the the colonel and getting like um i guess I don't know, recognized for your accomplishments or something, other forms of desire, mm-hmm. but but yeah, I, I don't know. I something again it's something about just the way Sydney plays that scene where he starts just losing his mind completely. It just starts to feel so clumsy. I thought maybe there could have been something cool there. It does just, yeah, we have this group of men all kind of isolated and it it does, but I in my mind I was comparing it to Jack and the Shining. I was comparing it to a proto version of Jack losing his mind and then like chasing um, Shelley Long with an axe. I felt I, I I just registered this as a microcosm proto version of that. Well, that's that that's that's fair. I guess I guess I could make it you know easier for you to kind of accept it. Well, it's just I could imagine this is a a poorly done version of Jack losing his mind, a poorly done version of. Jack obsessing over his wife and then ultimately trying to kill her. It just all happens in, in like five awkward minutes, like in this movie. Yeah, and again there's there's no through line too, because before when all the men were there, he was trying to protect her. He's like, Oh, don't hurt her, you know, she's just you know, she's just innocent. And then almost immediately when they're gone, he like switches gears and turns into the, this other person. And I feel like, yeah, they could be trying to say something there. It just it feels so clumsily done. It's just kind of like, 
just off-putting, I thought. It is clumsy, but it's it's that phenomenon that I'm sure you're aware of. I, I think about it a lot every now and then. Which is, it's those people, it's the politicians or people you just know in life, community leaders, who make such a stink about a certain political or moral position. And then later down the road, it turns out they get busted for doing that very thing that they're railing against. And then in hindsight, it makes you wonder, is that why they were trying to come off so pious in the first place? Was because they were trying to overcompensate oh. for an internal failing that they were either consciously or subconsciously aware of. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is a phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly a phenomenon, but I don't know if I see the connection. I mean, especially because at first he's trying to charm her, I guess, by doing his little play acting, and but then he just really does revert into that almost the characters that he was playing there. He starts talking about the magician or something, and saying that the world's like or i guess the the river is full of blood and it's like he can no longer distinguish between his little act that he was putting on in his his own character it doesn't seem to have any connection i wish i could think of some better because I, I, I know it's been done better than other movies i just can't think of a concrete example that i can bring forth i just know it's god it's been done it's been done i mean the whole thing where I just want to save you, and I just want to protect you, and oh, why do you got to be like that? And oh my god, and uh, next thing you know, they're killing him. Uh, I mean, okay, it was better done in, in Mice of Men. <laughs> <laughs> With Lenny. Uh, there's, a, there's a character in um, uh, Earthquake that kind of feels that way, but he's sinister throughout. He's Earthquake. <laughs> Earthquake, sorry. A random reference to bring in there. <laughs> <laughs> but in Mice of Men, you know, he he loves her, he just wants to protect her, he doesn't mean any harm. And then it's like, oh, why are you trying to do this? Oh, why are you why are you causing me to be mad and have to be rough and tough? Mm. Oh great. Now look what you did. Now you're dead. Why'd you have to do that? It's all your fault that you're dead. Like I feel like it's been done really well in other movies, not just and men, but other, I know there's better examples. I just can't put my finger on them right now. Yeah, and I, I, I complain mostly about this scene because I really do feel like it shows just the complete sloppiness in terms of like, I, I don't feel there's any real connection with it. Like, the character almost seems like, I mean, again, there was no character in the first place. It's just I feel like if you're doing this, it should have some sort of through line that should be saying something, but when I watch it, it just, I don't see anything. Again, I think one of the main points of it, the, the piece as a whole, is war affects different men differently. And again, he represents the strand that just loses their mind and loses their wits. Um, is it the war of lust? Because <laughs> everything's a war here in this movie. <laughs> well, again, I think the... I think the I think in its clumsy, awkward way, again, I think that's that's what it does because because females wreck a lot of things in in Kubrick's other movies. Um, Nicole Kidman makes Tom Cruise crazy in, in Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, Lolita. Um, Lolita, of course. That's a prime example. Barry Lyndon 
Um, Barry fucks his whole life because oh, yeah. of his uh, w- woman interactions. Uh, is his name Alex in uh, Eyes Wide Shut? Eyes Wide Shut. Clockwork Orange, who? Oh yeah. It's his largely his lust that fucks up his whole life and everything. His raping. Mm. Um. Uh. It's been a long time since I've seen like Killer's Kiss and stuff, but I know there's a there's a little femme fatale uh, in that one um, for the boxer. Oh, the killing! The killing's a big example of that. Now that I think about it, what was it. the example in the killing? So that's the one with the horse track, right? Yeah, the killing. It's uh, like the weak link guy tells his wife. Oh, okay, there you go. And his wife ends up letting things loose. His his wife what? Yeah, uh, lets loose about some details of the plan. Oh, okay, there you go. And then it's not direct; it's more indirect. But um, the crazy ass uh, is he a general, Colonel, in uh, Doctor Strangelove, and how he has his his side piece, uh, not his <laughs> weapon, but but his. But again, he's a lustful, crazy man, um, and he has a lust for yep. war as well. Uh, um, you know, and and warring and fighting and. And he, and he has his, his, I guess you could say it's combined with his libido. And you could say there's a sexual connotation as well in that movie between, um, oh, what's yeah. his name? What's his name? Uh, the guy with the funny name, uh, the actor with the funny name. Uh, Sterling Hayden or, <laughs> I, I don't know. I no, 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 no. Name. His, name, his name is funny. His name is funny when you just read it. Um, There's a lot of funny names in that. His name is funny, like the way Foghorn Leghorn is funny. No, but his real name in real life is funny. Um, oh, oh, uh, the guy rides the bomb. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What is? But that's name? what I'm saying. Him. Oh, jeez, I know it's killing me. Yeah, now I gotta look it up here. Damn. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing it too. Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens. Slim Pickens. That's Slim Pickens. So Slim Pickens. He's another guy who's crazy and has this lust. Yeah, he expresses it by writing the bomb, but again, it's 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 like lust drives well, these guys. I mean, the craziest is Sterling Hayden with his whole his whole uh, thing basically started with, oh, the the Ruskies they they poison the water and stealing like our sexual essence or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't get it up in bed essentially. <laughs> yeah. So see, we just almost just um, named like. We, we named most of the Kubrick movies. Um, and then you could argue um, the guys go crazy and um, partially because uh, in Full Metal Jacket because of the lack of access to females and sexual um, release. And of course, the only time we really get anything sexual in that movie is just um, the idea of the, the working women or the, in, the, in, the, in the city uh, in Vietnam. So you could argue those guys are going crazy because of their lack of, of putang. Um, it's a scientific term. Um, so you know, and then when we get to Spartacus, we're gonna have to reanalyze his his relationship um, in the oh, movie. Oh yeah. So I mean, we almost named every single Kubrick movie already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I already mentioned The Shining earlier. So, I mean, well, there you go. Yeah, and it's it's hard not to look at this movie without kind of comparing it to the other Kubrick films. Partially because I don't actually feel like there's a lot here. It seems like it's one of Kubrick's demons, whether it's 
manufactured in the stories, you know, or whether it reflects anything true within, within him, who knows. Um, mm. But again, it's a common thread in the Bergman stuff because so often Bergman's protagonists are an analog of himself and largely their biggest issues have to do with women throughout most of his movies. Um, and then Woody Allen does the same exact darn thing where he puts himself in a movie and his issue is trying to get with the girl or trying to stay with the girl or trying to break up with the girl. It's, it's always like, yeah. Oh, but do you feel like you're kind of at the, the final thoughts stage of this movie? Cause yeah, I don't really know if I have much else to say. I kind of burned through the things I was, that bothered me the most. Kind of. Most people say on YouTube, it's like if you watch Fear and Desire, most people say you're not going to see any sign of genius uh, or the genius that will be. Mm. That's the most, seems the most common hot take. And then there's the people who are a little bit more niche, like you and me, who are willing to extract, (laughs) like squeeze a little bit hard to get some some genius because there's the movie still has you mentioned it already but it still has very good framing very good cinematography um it does the most with its limitations visually i mean um Mm -hmm. so that separates it from some other schlocky i mean this is not like a ed an ed wood production okay no (laughs) it's 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 i think it's more frustrating it's more frustrating. <laughs> yeah, Edward, you can watch and just kind of laugh at the, you know, oh, they, they were trying their best and this is the crap they made. This one, it feels like, had it been slightly more polished, had they put a little bit more time into the preparation stage, we could have really had something here. But instead, we have all these kernels of ideas that just never come together to anything. And that just kind of bothers me. <laughs> It, what you're saying is true. It doesn't bother me, but it's true. I agree um, that they were this close. It's like uh, it's like when people say like you have a good student turns in like a C paper, like a really talented student, and it's like oh how, like it's worse than the, this guy who got the F because you could do so much better. I only hate that you brought that up because I watched like a whole hour long YouTube video on that very subject last night uh, on a bright student turning in a seed paper yeah and especially knowing and, and i guess it's partially a result of this movie kubrick is so precise and obsessed with getting things exactly how he wanted them if you watch this you could feel the looseness like it was just kind of okay you know that's good enough let's move on or I, i'm assuming in the preparation stage like some of these elements in the script it was probably like uh oh, maybe maybe when we get there we'll figure it out more and that stuff i I honestly look at a movie like this, and I feel like these are the kind of movies that give surrealism a bad name. Because someone could generally watch this and be like, this is just nonsense put together on the screen, like it's pretentious, but without any real meat behind it. I feel like that's a criticism that gets slopped at surrealism a lot. That it's just kind of uh, pretentious meanderings with no real kind of purpose to them. And that's what I feel when I watch something like this. Hmm. I mean, you're right. In general, I think I agree with what you're saying. I mean that it is these low-hanging fruit 
if you're criticizing a surreal movie, as you say. Um, but I don't know. This one, it's it's so weird. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a, a feature-length movie like Following was for Nolan, which is I think a very legit mm. indie movie. But on one of the special features, it might be on Memento. It shows some of his college short films. I don't know mm. if you've seen the one about the roach that Nolan made no. in, like in, in art school. No, I didn't see <laughs> it's, that it's, it's interesting because it's so silly. Um, and it's about this guy who's obsessed with killing this roach in his apartment. And it's like, it's like a seven minute short film. And it's, it's very, you know, in low, low budget produced, made at home kind of movie, short film. But it's funny because even though it's like one of his earliest works, it it plays with time a little bit. And that's just funny that he did that even in a little short seven-minute film. Um, that as soon as he gets to the end, spoiler, as soon as the little movie gets to the very end, you realize you're back at the beginning again. And the whole thing repeats. And it's mm. just funny that Nolan was doing stuff like that even with his little student film that's fun <laughs> but it, again it's it's silly it's like something uh peter jackson would have produced because it's over the top with this man trying to kill this weird roach in his apartment yeah and we're i actually mentioned this when we when we talked a little bit about those early cronenberg uh student films sometimes when i watch these i wonder because i mean me I, i'm just you know i'll just watch anything I, I can't help myself. I have to. I'm such a completist. But sometimes when I watch these early projects, I'm like, what's the value from watching these? Like, the filmmakers don't like them. They wish they didn't exist. We're seeing them at a very kind of just not where they're supposed to be, or not where they would be kind of stage. Like, what value do I get from watching something like this? I think there's value from watching Fear and Loathing because it's Kubrick. Because it's Kubrick. Uh, I... <laughs> but see, I wouldn't even recommend this to Kubrick fans. Even though I feel compelled to watch things like this, I would be like, uh, there's no real value for you going back, really. You probably won't enjoy it. You're not going to see a lot of kernels of the brilliance that he would go on to have. It's just kind of a kind of an archive. If you think there's any reason to be a Kubrick completionist for yourself, whoever you are personally, then you must see this. You must. But if you're just watching Kubrick because you just want to see some good movies, then you don't have to see this. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and speaking of home movies that are so not worth your time, I remember when I used to be buying the uh, M. Night Sh Shyamalan movies when they would be coming out on DVD. Mm. Um, and I feel like it's there's multiple of those, I believe, that show like his kid movies um, that show little movies that little M night made when he was like 10 years old with his camcorder. And if you want to talk about pretentious short films, <laughs> go ahead and watch those. M I mean, he put the damn things on the special features of many of his movies. Like, so he's like the complete opposite. Yeah. Or M night's first theatrical film praying with anger. 
There's another completely pretentious first film that no one needs to see, even Completionist of M. Night. There's no reason to go back. I don't think I know that one. Yeah, it's one of his two, the, one of the two that no one remembers exists. That and the one that he made with, uh, oh, what's that? Is it Rosie O'Donnell? Is that the actress? I don't remember her name, but. Well, I know who Rosie is, but I have no idea. Uh, yeah, he made he made a film with her before he made uh, The Sixth Sense. Uh, I think it was called Wide Awake. <laughs> Again, not worth seeing. But I'm such a completionist. But, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, no, I'm good on Fear and Desire. I, I think it's worth it to watch if you're a hardcore Kubrick person. Otherwise, yeah, no. Yeah, I think me and you both kind of fall into the category of just being almost like a film archivist. We'll okay. watch. We'll go into things that we know we're not going to enjoy, oh, just yeah. to have watched them. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't do that, and that's totally fair. <laughs> I think you're right because, for instance, I think you even do that with books or something. Like, just read something because you have to because of some reason. Whereas I would fucking never read a book. I mean, especially a fiction. I mean, that will derive no pleasure. Oh God, no! Mm. I don't got time for that. I don't even have time for good books. Forget about throwaway books. And you're right. I know a lot of people that if if the series or the movie doesn't grip them pretty early, there's there's no reason to spend more time on it. Mm. And and again, Sean famously, if he doesn't get a movie the first time, or if he feels like he needs to walk out halfway, he's perfectly fine to do that and to never return to whatever it is. Whereas me, with certain movies, I have to fig- I have to crack the code. Like, hmm. if I think I was supposed to like it, but I didn't, I have to keep going until I figure out, like, where did I go wrong? Like, Yeah, and we've, we've done quite a, quite a few surrealist films up to this point. Do you feel the same way that I feel with this one, where I feel like I could keep watching this and I wouldn't get that much of a different experience because I just generally don't think there's much there? I can gleam or again ex- extract a little bit more juice out of this stone um and again me imagining this as a metaphor for making a movie um that's just my own little theory for funsies you know what i mean like um yeah. almost like playing a game with myself even though i feel like i can substantiate it even if it's just completely made up and not true I think you can still make an argument that it's a metaphor of, of struggling to make your first movie and all the things that could end it for you, meaning finishing the project, because you either run out of money or nobody cares about it and or nobody wants to distribute. Those are all the obstacles. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's a fun little piece of, of headcanon. <laughs> but I just feel like if you were watching this and really trying to put it together and trying to decipher what the intention was behind it. I feel like it was too loose to ever really give that full intention, even if they had it when they were making it, even if they're like, okay, this means this, this means this. I just don't feel like, no matter how many times I watch it, that I could fully put it together as a no. complete piece. You're right. And it also reminds me of, this is the kind of thing that like, Tarantino will grab onto some western or some type of military heist movie that that no one ever watched from the mid 70s 
and then he'll be so inspired by that and create like a full, fully functional, wholly rounded movie based on the concept. Um, and mm-hmm. so I feel like Tarantino could watch Fear and Desire and then somehow make the grown-up version of it, the fully developed grown-up version where it actually all means something. Like, this is something for a Tarantino-type person to figure out. It would be cool to see Tarantino make a just genuine, like, abstract film. <laughs> I've always wondered what that would look like. <laughs> I'd definitely be there for it. However, I still want him to do either a straight-up space science fiction movie or um, a, a more legit horror movie. Um, horror slash mm. movie. Not one that just implies horror and slash, but like an actual, this is a horror movie, but it's made by Tarantino. Yeah. Yeah, a horror movie could be cool. I don't know. I just like to see him stretch. More. Like, like man, like what would, what would Tarantino's like vampire movie be like? It seems like it'd be the greatest well, vampire movie ever, um, regardless of which direction he goes with it, whether it was historical or present day, or it just seems like wow, he would do something fucking amazing if he made a, a, a vampire movie. Well, I mean, he kind of already did with From Dust Till Dawn, but I think he only wrote the script for that one. Oh, I forgot that even exists. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're right. But I wasn't even thinking of that kind of movie. Because uh, it's more of like That's a ground, grindhousey, like yeah, over the top, silly kind of movie. I was thinking of like a legit psychological horror or like like an Anne Rice interview mm. with a vampire type thing, except through a Tarantino lens. Like, oh, that would just be like That'd so be cool. epic. Yeah, it'd be really cool to see him just completely stretch out of... Because everything that he's made, even though they're in different genres and different styles, they've all got that underlying Tarantino kind of flavor. It'd be cool to see something that really kind of kept that, but, you know, pushed it to a little bit more unrecognizable territory. I agree. But supposedly he only has one more movie left in him. Yeah, but you know him. I mean, he's been floating lately. Oh, you know... Just because I stopped making movies, maybe I'll go to TV. Uh, Netflix is doing all this stuff now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he's just talking, but <laughs> we'll see. That would be cool. I, I remember he used to like direct like guest episodes of like famous TV shows back in the oh yeah two thousands and yeah. stuff. It was a huge deal, and he directed that CSI two parter. I was absolutely there for that. Uh, he directed a uh, an Alias two. I, I was a fan of that JJ Abrams show back in the oh, day. Oh wow. And I was like, oh my god, it's a Tarantino one. And I was like, oh, I can tell the dialogue's different. You know, <laughs> like in this episode. Mm. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's Fear and Desire. And I guess Killer's Kiss is next. Oh yeah, Killer's Kiss. Big fan. Really like that yeah. one. And we'll see uh, Frank Silves. I, I, don't, I don't have my IMDb open anymore. Is it Frank Silvera? Silvera? Silvera, I, I think. Yeah, we'll see him again. Yes, that'll be nice in a much better role. But, <laughs> oh, but yeah, I guess that's the end of this one here. I guess you don't want to do your uh, your rating. Well, I don't know if I had a rating for it, but <laughs> I wasn't prepared. But I can come up with something. You know what? And it's because I'm a homer again. I can't give it two and a half. I gotta give it three. Uh, I gotta oh, give wow. it. Wow. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> it's it's got Kubrick's name on it. I can't help it. And I'm sure it'll probably be the lowest ranking or rated um, that I give of all his movies. I'm sure no, nothing could come lower than this. Um, 
But I'm with three. That's the lowest Cooper can produce as far as I'm concerned. Well, if I'm going to rate mm-hmm. it, because I guess we should if we're going to do all these. It might be uh, so we can actually kind of compare them against each other. I would honestly, if we can give one point, if we can give point uh, fives, I'd give it one point five. Oh my god! So I think the cinematography is great, and there's some really interesting kind of kernels. Like I really appreciate just visually seeing the uh, the pilot shoot himself as an older general. I think that's a great image. It just I don't really feel like really has that much meaning behind it, which takes away. But so yeah, one point five, interesting for a one-time viewing, but. Only if you're a film archivist. Wow, so on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics are very nice to this movie. <laughs> of um, course. <laughs> it has a 71% <laughs> amongst the critics. Complete lark. Uh, it, has a, it has a 36 amongst the public audience. Um, <laughs> the blurb is extremely short. Um, four soldiers must confront their fears and desires behind enemy lines. Yeah, and I will say there's a little bit of a flaw in Rotten Tomatoes with their aggregator. Because for a lot of these movies that weren't seen for so long, the only reviews that they really have are like modern people rediscovering it. Yeah. And usually it's fanboys. So <laughs> they're completely biased. Yeah. You know, you, you're right about that. Um, but I think there's another flaw, which I still haven't been able to figure out. Um, so Rotten Tomatoes. You know, they look at the critics, um, people writing their, um, the professional critics writing their reviews and whatnot. And based on whoever the critic is, they're either, Rotten Tomatoes is determining, determining that their review is either positive or negative. That's it. It's not doing five stars. You know what I mean? It's either, mm. it's either thumbs up or thumbs down. And if it's thumbs up, then it's supposed to be a fresh tomato by that person and if it's if it's not thumbs up then it's the, the splattered tomato um but what i don't like is that the icon will tell you that this credit gave it a splattered tomato and then i click on it because i tend to read those first when i really like a movie and then i click on it and when i read the article it sounds like the writer actually likes the movie sometimes and so then i don't understand oh, why it counts as a name I've, I've come across that many times um or the critic will rate it three out of five stars, but on the Rotten Tomato site, that same article is listed as a splattered tomato. So that's where I don't understand. That's weird. Mm. I've seen it. I, I should probably write it down next time I see it, but I feel like I see it a lot, and it doesn't make sense to me. Oh, but I'll, I'll quickly comment in this episode here. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, maybe that's a little bit of a differential for us. I mean, I think we both hold kubrick up there with our absolute favorite filmmakers but even still i'm no fanboy i really don't think this movie has much value probably didn't have much value even at the time it's just an experiment of can i complete a feature and then when it was done kubrick moved on to bigger better things figured out how to do pre-production you know have time and budgets to really put together a good story and um care about or at least um know how to get better performances from actors so it's it's an unusual place to start the retrospective because it's so not representative of his career going forward but uh, it's it's still worthwhile to to look at it just as you know even the great people start at bad places i think it's worthwhile we already said this but 
Have you ever seen anything like this made in America prior to the 1960s? Like nothing, mm. right? Like nothing. And we also already said that probably the only reason this one exists is because it's by Kubrick. Well, then so be it. <laughs> Thankfully, it had his name attached, so we have an example of this type of very non-mainstream. You know, otherwise we'd have nothing. You know what I mean? And I always say this: this happens in all forms of art, whether it's music, classical music, books, um, comics, movies, television shows. That once 20, 30, 40 years passes after the release of a book or a movie or a TV show, um, they stop airing. Whenever they stop syndicating it, it basically dies. And there's mm-hmm. so many movies and television shows um, from the 70s, 80s, and prior that we just literally do not even know exist. Um, yep. Like I hear like classical music. Like if you're into traditional classical music, um, all the stuff that you can get like on CD or listen to on Spotify, they say, I don't remember what the number is, but they say it's something like it represents 2% of all the classic classical music that was created in the day but we only remember the top two percent do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and they say the same thing about like literature like there was tons of literature that was known of and lost but you never learned about it all you learn about is like the shakespeare and the chaucer the stuff that was the most mega popular but it was was kept and everything else was discarded so I think people just have no idea, like the shows that used to exist and and movies, but you literally can't even find it now. Yeah, it's it's sad, and yeah, that's and now this one's preserved in the Library of Congress, so it'll never be lost again. There you go. There you go. Till the end of time. Oh, uh, but yeah, catch us on the next one for Killer's Kiss or whatever else. Peace. Yes, absolutely. No, there's the famous day the music died, the the plane, the famous plane crash, depicted in La Bamba, um, where all those uh, popular popular musicians of the day all died together in the same plane crash, um, and who knows what happened there. And I have still lamented um, the fact that James Horner died in that plane crash not too many years ago. Because, God, oh, yeah. he's always been one of my favorite composers. I mean, yeah, Golds, um, Goldsmith and uh, Williams were always at the top of, of the earlier era of the 70s and 80s. 
Um, they were always at the top of the heap of composers. But Horner was like, he was second tier to them, but I always felt more fun and in a more simple kind of way. Um, mm. And I just, God, I just love so many of his scores up until the end of his career. And yeah, I don't know. Still sad. Um, I really like his score for. Um, he did one of the Spider-Man ones, I think. Um, I think he did the first one oh. uh, of Amazing Spider-Man. I mean, Amazing Spider-Man. He did the first Amazing Spider-Man. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, I, and I think Zimmer weirdly did the second Amazing Spider-Man. Um, yeah, which is a good score actually. That that second movie has a great score. I actually like both of them, and they're different, but I like them both. And but yeah. I mean, I love his Apocalypto score. And yeah, I do like his, um, um, uh, not Pandora, um, Avatar, and Titanic, and of course you get the old stuff. Yeah. You get the whole Wrath of Khan search for Spock. Oh yeah, aliens. Uh, Crawler, cruel, uh, aliens. And yes, I know Horner is one of the worst at plagiarizing himself, <laughs> but I don't care. Uh-huh. I don't care if he constantly plagiarizes himself because I I just love it. But anyway, I don't know why we're on this whole plane crash jag, but... Um, yeah, sorry. 